The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, Sarah and I do another edition of Ask an Indian, part two, and Sarah will answer your questions from our listeners. So are you ready to go again, Sarah? I am. Okay, here we go. So this first question is actually a question from me. Um, so I remember being in a meeting with you where a, a group of people and someone used the phrase off the res. And I noticed that people, some people in that meeting were more offended by the use of that term than you actually were. And you were actually the only native person in that meeting. So I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about your response to that. Sure. And so um, I'll just make my usual uh, announcement that I usually do in these episodes, which is to say I'm speaking for myself only. So I'm <laughs> happy to share my point of view. Um, I don't certainly speak for all Native American people. Well, it sounds like the phrase you're describing off the res, um, that was being called out as a microaggression. And so a friend of mine and a consultant I've worked with before, her name is Pamela Oaks, um, defines a microaggression as the everyday, subtle, unintentional interactions or behaviors that communicate some sort of bias toward historically marginalized groups. And I don't want to diminish the importance of calling out microaggressions as an ally because I think that can be really important work. However, it can also deflect from having a productive conversation about structural change, which from my point of view is organizing for dismantling laws and policies that continue to oppress vulnerable peoples. So when we spend a lot of time talking about microaggressions, it can switch the focus of the work to virtue signaling, which also from my point of view is an attempt to justify the position of the person trying to be an ally. So that person may want to avoid feelings of guilt and demonstrate that they're on the right side. And so to demonstrate their virtue, they're going to call this out, which is, as I said before, sometimes really important. Um, so it can though, um, keep people of privilege front and center in the conversation rather than allowing the conversation to center around the interest of indigenous peoples or other vulnerable peoples. I'm just really struck by that, that, that I think what you're saying is that when that kind of calling out microaggressions happens and that becomes kind of almost like the uh, it, it can actually, if, if that just happens and that becomes almost like too much what happens, it can actually take 
the it can actually take it can actually keep things centered on people of privilege rather than focusing on actually what indigenous and other marginalized people really want to talk about i think is what i hear you saying is that correct yeah and so i think there's a way to do it i think it's possible to say hey i heard this and i want to acknowledge it and just put it out there i think this is important and now let's move on you know so that we can get it out there and then keep going with the, the purpose of the conversation, which, you know, I know the conversation you're talking about. And from, from my point of view, um, what I'm often talking about is structural change, right? So I would, that's what I want to talk about is um, engaging in dismantling laws and policies of oppression. So anyway, it reminds me of this other thing that I've learned about in training. That's helpful. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. And that that's called tone policing. Have you heard of that, Sherry? Yeah, definitely. So tone policing is being more concerned with how something is said than what is being said. So it's often used as a deflection and a defense mechanism to avoid confronting one's own issues. So this is a dynamic I've experienced when folks from the dominant culture say, I can't listen to what you're saying if you're going to be so angry or you're being shrill um, or why do you have to be so angry? You know, and I've seen this happen in other contexts, you know, like at the United Nations and at the World Council of Churches, where indigenous people get up to speak passionately about the oppression of their people and the facilitators instruct them to tone it down or leave the room. So in other words, I'm not going to listen to what you're saying if you if you're not using the right tone. Um, And so uh, and so white people can police each other too by insisting on the, that the focus of the work must be on language instead of action. And I get it. I mean, I, I understand the the impulse because the realm of language is comfortable. You know, if we're talking about, you know, what we should say and how we should say it, that's a comfortable conversation. Um, and you know, it is more comfortable for an individual to reflect on their own experience rather than trying to relate to or take common cause with the suffering of a vulnerable person, right? So, or you might feel like, hey, there's nothing I can do about structural change, but there is something I can do about this language issue, right? So it's always more comfortable to focus on the thing that I, I feel like I know about. And so, um, and and I think that can, you know, in in, in the in this assertion of being an ally, it can dismiss and undermine the work that vulnerable people are trying to do to dismantle oppression. Um, so just, you know, the people that I've worked with all these years in the Guiana Shield, you know, I promise you, um, they wouldn't be offended by the term you described. <laughs> you know, that, that conversation would not um, the, from my point of view is not furthering their interests, right? They're asking for a demanding change to laws and policies that intentionally contaminate their lands with toxic mine waste and a change in language. While it's important superficially is not going to dismantle the laws, um, that remove these indigenous people from their lands and contaminate their bodies and communities. And so, um, it's, it is, frequently when this comes up in, in the coalition and our conversation, Sherry, just as you've observed, I kind of will stand aside for a minute and then try and get us back on track. Well, I appreciate what you just said about how you would handle that, like acknowledge that this happened. And then as you said, instantly 
or instantly or very quickly get back on track because I've certainly been a part of meetings where I feel like that has then become the focus. Um, I also want to say that my sociologist husband, Mm -hmm. Jerome, talks about macroaggressions versus microaggressions. So a macroaggression is being removed from your land and having uh, pollution uh, being, you know, that's contaminating your body and your community. Uh, that is a macroaggression. <laughs> and it is understandable why if you are a community that's experiencing that, that's going to be front and center of what you're wanting to change rather than focusing on microaggressions. Yeah. And I, I also want to say, I mean, it can happen. It's happened to me many times where I was in a conversation with a group um, or an organization and and this happens, somebody calls out a microaggression and then, you know, the whole group can become embroiled in conversation and there can become this paralysis where it's like, man, we can't really engage in this work until we've done our own work. We have to do our own work first. And, and that could be so frustrating for me because it, it is the constant delay. It is the constant justice delayed, um, um, justice yeah. deferred, right? Like we're, we, we're, we're, we're going to wait until we're perfect to work on this issue. And, um, that is, um, that's not, that's not going to work for me. Well, may I also say that I feel like there is sometimes a class component to this. I feel like the more well off you are, the more you may end up focusing on microaggressions, (laughs) whereas the more you are dealing with kind of basic survival or bigger, you know, discriminatory stuff, the, the more you probably want to be focusing on, on the macro, on that macro aggression. And I, I think that I, I do think there's sometimes a class basis to this. I think the more middle class an organization is, the more it kind of is likely to get a little fixated around this, around the, the language and the microaggression stuff. And maybe that's also partly, I, I think, I, I wonder if that's partly because literally our survival is not at stake often as a I'm going to speak as myself, as a white middle-class person. Um, And also because I do think you're right that there can sometimes be this sense of, well, like, I don't know how to do systemic change, but I do know how to change this. Um, So I want to do the thing that I feel the most competent and comfortable at. So I have always, I've always appreciated your push, Sarah, to keep looking at the structural change at the laws and policies and focus on those while, you know, acknowledging this stuff we're talking about, but really keeping the focus there. And I really appreciated that from you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think often, you know, as we're on the road to, you know, seeking the establishment of the kingdom of God or on the road to Mecca, however you want to think about it, um, we have the opportunity to be in a process of change, but we don't stand on the side of the road and wait for that change to be complete before we go back on the road. You know, I mean, we have to, that's happened in, in process. Yeah. So the next question, um, so in a conversation 
this person said in a conversation with some folks who were engaged, wanting to be engaged in, you know, solidarity with indigenous people, they said, how do we know which side to take when indigenous people in a community are divided? For example, you we can find some tribes who are supportive of, of certain tribes seeking federal recognition and some aren't, or some tribes might be supportive of a development project and others are not, or people within a tribe may be supportive of a development project and others are not. How do we know, and this question is coming from you know a white person, how do we know which side is the side of justice when it's not always clear? And how do we not cause further divisions in Indian country as outside as outsiders who are supporting one side. Yeah. And and this question comes up a lot and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Whoever submitted that question for having the courage to, to talk about this. I think there is this paralysis that happens. Um, You know, one of the things I want to start with is just talking about for a moment, what a tribe is. So when people are talking about tribes, often what they're talking about is the, the tribal government structure. So for those tribes that have treaties with the federal government, that will mean it is it is a formal government structure. It's a decision making body that makes decisions for that polity. Right. So they are a political body um, that that has authority over the people in their membership or the, those people who are enrolled in that tribe. So to me, a a really a similar body to a tribe would be a state. So I live in Washington state and I do not happen to agree with everyone else that lives in Washington state. Call me crazy, but you know, there are other people in Washington (laughs) state who hold views that are very different from my views. Right. So, I mean, a tribe is just like a state. So of course there's going to be a diverse, um, there are going, there's going to be a diversity of interests and beliefs and thoughts and feelings and also religious affiliations and so on. So, um, you know, you could assume that there is going to be that diversity all the time because I don't foresee in my state, Washington state, all the people in Washington state agreeing on stuff. This just doesn't happen, right? We we hold elections and we vote and so on, right? Right. Um, I was recently part of uh, the Washington state redistricting process. And I, we did a podcast about that. Um, but anyway, as we were doing consultation with um, federally recognized tribes, there were activists from the same tribe who held different interests from the tribal government. Right. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's just life, isn't it? Because um, the representatives in my state, in Washington state, those representatives in my region do not happen to hold the same beliefs that I do all the time. Right. And that, isn't that the case? You have a government structure and the, the, the polity or the people that live within that. And so I want to be really clear about that in terms of, you know, divisions in Indian country. I, I can hold different opinions from the legislators in my state. And I don't feel that means that there's a division between us. Do you understand? Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. and I, I want to be really clear about that. Cause I think that when we use, we use those, that kind of language, you know, it is revealing beliefs about the differentness of indigenous people. I don't want to mm. side with one Indian over another because that's different from me, um, a, a person from the dominant culture who holds a different opinion from another person of the dominant culture. Man, that happens all the time. Right. There's no reason to panic. 
<laughs> it's just that's just how it is. Right. We have political parties and we have, you know, neighborhood associations and we have, you know, all kinds of different ways that we agree and disagree. And that doesn't mean that we're like this big divided thing. You know, like if if I disagree with with the legislator in my area and Sherry, you happen to agree with them and you say in conversation or even in your political action, you want to go side with that legislator. Are you deepening the division between me and them? <laughs> I mean, do you worry about that? I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to just talk some more here about this, um, uh, the, just kind of getting more into the complexity of what we're talking about. So I, I talked a little about tribes, but now I just want to talk about, um, you know, dominant people from the dominant culture forming relation to relationships with indigenous peoples, it's not always clear where to stand. And I get that that's challenging. And um, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to know where to stand. So I want to talk, I'm going to give another example, and then we'll see if we can ground this a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk a minute about some figures from that many of you may be familiar with. Um, from the civil rights movement. And by the way, I know the civil rights movement is ongoing, but I'm talking about the um, the time during the 60s when it was very pronounced and there was large scale structural change um, happening and being demanded and then happening in the 60s. So I want to talk about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. They were both civil rights activists, um, but they were leaders of different movements. So Malcolm X mm-hmm. um, was a leader of the Black Nationalism Movement or the Black Nationalist Movement which gave rise to the black power movement. Um, and so that movement, you know, in a nutshell, from my point of view was about, um, race, pride and self-defense. Um, and so for much of his time as a civil rights leader, Malcolm X dismissed the goal of race integration as servile, right? So he, he wasn't an integrationist. He was a black nationalist. So I don't think he believed that the dominant culture could give rights or deny dignity to black people. Um, He held that they had those things inherently and should not have to ask for them at all. He was also a minister of the Nation of Islam. And in stark contrast with Martin Luther King Jr., who advocated for integration and used nonviolent strategies like civil disobedience and boycotting to achieve his policy goals. And he was a Baptist preacher. So the two of them were kind of had a different way of approaching civil rights. They were both civil rights leaders. So would it be fair to say that a white person should not join the civil rights movement until MLK and Malcolm X agreed? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I think it's fair to say that they both opposed oppression for black people and white hegemony. They opposed white hegemony. Their tactics for responding to racism differed significantly. Right. I mean, they they didn't go about it in the same way. Well, no, and it certainly didn't keep, you know, white people from getting involved, especially with MLK's movement, because it, there was a, a, a place for them to, to, to enter in there. And it certainly didn't keep white people from getting involved in that movement. Yeah. And I, I want to also just just make this even more complicated by saying that there were ordinary black men and women that were afraid of the actions taken by civil rights activists, including MLK and Malcolm X. 
um, because they mm. feared sex, those actions would result in violence and make life worse for their families. So all black people were not on the same side during the civil rights activities of the 1960s. So, I mean, would you say to yourself, man, I don't think we should have civil rights until all the black people agree. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think as people of conscience, or speak for myself as a person of conscience, I have to d- determine where I want to stand, and then I'm going to stand there. I mean, if if I if I throw in my lot, you know, let's say this is you know 1961 or whatever, and if I throw in my lot with Malcolm X, am I causing a further division between Malcolm X and MLK? <laughs> I'm just asking. Right. I mean, I- no, right, right. I mean, you know, no, of course not. Um, you're, yes, of course not. I think you're saying I want to be an ally and walk alongside and be an ally in this work of civil rights, and I'm going to come alongside this this person. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't even necessarily mean I'm opposed to Malcolm X. It just means mm-hmm. that I'm coming alongside this person and I'm going to join them. But that doesn't lead it's not about division it's just about where you're standing and where you're kind of where in that sense where you're going to be who you're going to be what movement you're going to be doing the work with yeah and you know at the coalition we acknowledge that indigenous peoples form complex diverse communities with varied interests just like people in the dominant culture do and we choose in the coalition to join with and support the brilliance of indigenous individuals and communities who are seeking self-determination, decolonization, and the dismantling of oppressive systems, including the doctrine of discovery. So that's that's where, you know, as a coalition, that's what we say. This is where, where we choose to stand. And so, um, you know, one of the challenges I have with the federal rules for um, determining um, who is a federally recognized tribe. And there are things you have to do in order to be federally recognized. And some of those rules, well, I would say most of those rules are um, so difficult to to comply with. For example, uh, people has to remain in the land, um, their original land base um, from you know, from before colonization. Well, how is that supposed to happen when you, when we had a whole policy era of removal that pushed people out of their um, traditional homelands and put them on reservations? You know, I mean, there's very Byzantine, ridiculous rules. Um, You also, you have to have, you know, you have to have a a political body that's been in place and just making decisions for the group since that time, since before colonization. And so, you know, from whose point of view and, and what lens, you know what I'm saying? So you have to document all that stuff. So, so what I'm saying is personally, I take issue with federal recognition at all. (laughs) I think those, the, the, the rules of federal recognition are, are designed to remove um, the maximum number of people possible from their lands. That's, that's what they're designed to do. And so I, you know, that's not something I'm, I'm going to get behind it. So that that's kind of how how I personally um, approach that. And I mean, the, the listener who put forward that question, and, and each person is going to have to dis- discern discern hopefully um, 
in community, which is what we strive to do, how, how, how to approach that and where they're going to stand. But, you know, the coalition, we don't believe that some Indians are good <clears throat> and some Indians are bad. We realize everyone is doing the best they can from their own point of view, right? So for, for those people who are saying, you know, don't make a ruckus, to, let's just leave things the way they are. Um, they're doing the best they can from their own point of view. And they're activists, though, who are seeking to dismantle oppressive structures. And that causes stress to the system. And, you know, and I personally, and I would say our coalition strives to stand with those people who are doing that difficult work. We partner with those who are dismantling oppressive systems as their strategy for confronting oppression. Oh, no. Even though those activists may be causing, dis- I mean, there may be many people within their own communities that don't agree with what they're doing. But what you're saying is because they are seeking to dismantle oppressive structures, we're going to stand with them, knowing that not everybody, of course, in their home community is going to be agreeing with what they're doing. Yes, that's right. And, and you know, I also want to say that, that you know, Indigenous peoples are struggling with oppression. And that that's true for, for everyone. There's no good native people and bad native people and so on where everyone is doing their best. And, um, I am not going to, um, uh, I am not going to base my actions as a, as an individual, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask my congregation, um, to, to withhold support because it might cause a ruckus. I'm into mm, the ruckus, right. Sherry. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I'm lifting up the <laughs> ruckus here. <laughs> you really, you, I'm, I, I mean, never knew this about that, you. <laughs> that's what it takes to change the world. And that's what we're trying to do. I mean, it's possible to try and find pockets, you know, I, I, I it's it's possible to find pockets where it's not that bad, you know, so you say, well, it's not that bad right here. So I don't want to endure the ruckus. And man, I get that. You know, I have a family too, but um, I'm in it. I'm in it for the ruckus. I want, I want liberation for my people. So last question. Um, so there are some, you know, folks whom will say when, when indigenous people say they want land back or land return, does that mean they want me to, they want to kick me out of my house? Do they want me to leave the country or something? What do indigenous people actually mean? That question is so, is so interesting. Um, I was at a gathering um, of some Quaker people. Oh gosh, Sherry, it would be more than 10 years ago by now. And, you know, as a, as a congregation, they had decided they couldn't support, um, dismantling the doctrine of discovery, or they didn't want to become a repudiating congregation at that time because they didn't want to have to leave their homes. This is, you know, folks who are mainly retired. And I thought that was, that was so interesting to think that if we were going to dismantle, um, the structure of oppression, that it would mean that you have to leave your home. So you know, I think that, you know, historians estimate that there were between 100 million and 300 million indigenous peoples in North and South America at the time of colonization. 
And now in the United States, there are, you know, approximately 330 million people in the United States and only 2% are native, right? So it's much smaller number, very diminished um, population. And so this idea that, you know, in the land base that we live here, um, that all the land will be given back to indigenous people is unrealistic and um, it doesn't make sense. So I think, I think we were talking about land return. Once again, I'm speaking from my own point of view. Um, there are many conversations we can have before we're getting to private property. And don't get me wrong, I hope we someday get to have the private property conversation. But, uh, you know, until then, we have these other kinds of land bases. And so um, we have federal lands. Um, be- even before we get there, we have reservation lands, the reservation lands that were set aside for uh, indigenous peoples um, that that they then um, had taken away from them through the Dawes Act, um, the Allotment Act and um, through various um, legal maneuvering to ensure that settlers can come, could come and settle on reservations. Um, so just starting, if you're just starting with reservation land, many indigenous peoples would like to have that land back, right? Or portions of it. And so that's, that's, that's land that was originally set aside for indigenous people. Then we could talk about um, state land and federal land. This is reserve land that's been set aside. And, um, you know, I would like to just reframe this conversation for a moment and say many, many of us know, many of us sense and some of us know and discuss how um, climate change is changing our reality so rapidly and could feel sort of paralyzed in knowing what to do about it. Yeah. And what would it be like if we, and I'm just talking now about, about carbon emissions, because you and I know Sherry, that there's a lot more to environmental, um, uh, caring for creation than just, um, being carbon neutral. But if we're just, if we're just talking about carbon entering the atmosphere, Right. And, you know, so many of us feel paralyzed and we just don't know what to do about that. But let's think for a moment, how would it impact climate change if we said all gas and oil leases would now be reviewed by the native people that are closest to to where that um, fuel is going to be extracted? How hmm. would that change the climate conversation? <laughs> If we started thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, who are the appropriate people to steward this land? We know that indigenous peoples, while being some of the least resource people in the United States and Canada, are often on the front lines of being water protectors and um, and earth protectors. That they are um, often advocating for um for the preservation of land and water, not only for themselves, but for all the people that are living in their communities. What if we were to say, we need to listen to these voices instead of um, looking at these decisions through the eyes of commerce, right? Where um, financial structures, particularly those that are, that are run by our government determine what oil and gas leases are going to be made. What if, what if land protectors were the ones that were determining that? How, how would that change our outlook 
um, on climate change? How might climate change, you know, be slowed or even halted? So, so this idea of returning land to native people does not need to be a threat. It could be transformative for, for all of us. In fact, I would go as far as to say that there is no, there is no climate justice without decolonization, that decolonization is climate justice. And there is no climate justice without decolonization, right? That, that those people who are connected to the land on that level, um, why can't we listen to their leadership in determining what ought to happen on it? Right. Why can't they be given, be, why can't they take the lead and be given much greater say on, on, on how to steward land and use it, use it and live on it and relate to it in a way that we can sustain <laughs> that we can sustain ourselves into the future, which is not what's happening right now. You know, we're talking about with, the trajectory we're on as a dominant culture of we, us not, you know, people are talking about humans not existing in a few generations if we keep going on the trajectory we're on. So, I mean, clearly we have to do something different. Yeah. There's, and you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to boil it down to one little example in my community here. We have a state park here in, in Washington and in, in the area where I live um, it's a state park and it's on the reservation, um, which is that it's on the reservation that, that I live on. And, um, the reservation was set aside for, um, the nation here to have, um, till the end of time. That's what their treaty says. And yet there's a state park because the Lotman Act said, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to cut up this reservation. We're going to put people on 40 to 80 acre allotments and then whatever is left over is surplus. Right. And we're going to sell it. <laughs> so that's what the allotment did to reservation. Right. Anyway, in the middle of all that, we have a state park um, on the reservation. And that state park is kind of these big lawns. I think I've even taken you out there, Sherry, when you came to visit me. There's all these lawns that have to be watered. And I live basically in the middle of a desert. And you know, there's riding lawnmowers, acres and acres of lawns. And this park is kind of a tribute to um, uh, a fort that was built during the Indian wars. Um, and so anyway, there's the state park and it's, and it's now a, a, a recreation, a reimagined creation of this fort. And there are some people who come out there and visit it and imagine the cost of keeping it up. It's amazing. It's, it's kind of an unsustainable relationship to land in a nutshell. Go ahead. Yeah. And it's on this old Oak forest, um, which was originally a sacred site to the people. And it's now the state, um, park that glorifies, um, the, the fort, the garrison that was set up to quell the Indian rebellion. Why Sherry? Why? Like that land right there, that's not going to make anybody be homeless to give that land back to the native people. Why? Does the state need to have that park? It, they probably spend more maintaining it than they than the amount of visitors who pay their ten dollars for a pass to go onto the park. Anyway, all I'm saying there's lots of land we could enter into conversation about land back. Yeah, and well, 
thank you, Sarah. I think that that is, um, I, I think that, I, I mean, honestly, I, I was kind of chuckling a little bit when you told me about this group of Quakers who weren't going to engage in this because they didn't want to leave their homes. And I forget that, you know, but I've been doing this work for so many years that I, 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 I kind of was remembering, like, I, I think I had that question myself, like land back. I'm on land. I guess, I guess I'm supposed to give this back. Um, so thank you for that answer that I think gives us a lot of room to, um, to, to understand what is actually being asked. And I also appreciate what you said about let's, let it would be good to have the conversation sometime about private property also. So here's my last, here's my last um, little plug I'll put in there, Sherry. Um, you know, I was engaged um, recently with a, a, a Catholic laity um, in Scotland. The, the Catholic laity there asked me to come and talk about the doctrine of discovery as they are thinking through um, how they want to engage with the Pope, given his most recent encyclical and in his most recent um encyclical, he asked that instead of the bishops being, you know, the responders, but for the laity to, to step forward. So they were really taking that seriously and, and talking about how they, how they want to engage with that conversation. And, you know, one of the things I said to them was, look, you know, one of the largest landowners on earth is the Catholic church. Um, Not just the Catholic church, the Christian church owns tons of real estate, um, what about giving some of that land back? What would it be like to imagine repatriating that land to to the first peoples? Yeah, there was actually a Methodist church here in California who did give some land back um, to the native peoples of that uh, of that area, and I I was really encouraged to hear it. I hear some of that happening in like little places, but I'm very aware of how much land that. I mean, I'm quite aware of how much land the Catholic Church has and other, you know, denominations quite a bit larger than the Mennonite Church. <laughs> and I think there's a place for all of us to start with land back that doesn't, that is not, um, that is not related to me actually having to leave my home. And there are also people, and I just want to plug this too. In in the Anabaptist context, people who are leaving farms, so that these are farms that have been held by a family for generations, and nobody in the family now wants to farm, and they're and they're selling their farms. Is there an opportunity to gift a portion of that land to Native people? And if that's not possible, is it possible to give a portion of that money from that land sale for the liberation of Indigenous peoples? And the answer to that question is yes. And we know people who have done it. And if you want to be one of those people who have done it, yes. I'm going to put some information in the show notes about who to contact about that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Sarah. I appreciate you taking the time to answer these questions. And um, again, we always want more questions from you all. So I will also put information in the show notes about how to send in questions for our next edition of this. So thank you, Sarah. Oh, it's just a pleasure. Thank you, Sherry. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDOD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, 
go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Thank you.